Well, all right, VBS. Man, what an exciting week. Uh, it was, man, if you helped out and participated in VBS, man, thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, I would also like to say, man, Lynn Abney is awesome. Uh, I walked in a week before last, I walked in one day, like I walked in that night and it looked like it did when you walked in this morning. I walked in the next day and it did not. Uh, it was like the whole back hallway would look like it was underwater and man, it was amazing. And so, man, the Abneys did such an incredible job, not just with decorations, but all of the logistics that's involved with that. We had at any one time, the most we had was uh, 89 kids at a, at a night. So um, well over 100 kids participated, but as many as 89 at night, man, we had volunteers all over the place. And so, man, our church really answers the bell for those types of things. And so uh, we're, we're so very thankful for that. Word of praise. Now we'll have the total amount that I want to share with y'all next week. But we, the in the penny drive that we did, now there was incentive, right? The boys versus the girls. And, you know, of course the boys lost and I had to do something horrible. Uh, I had to eat the worst sandwich ever. Um, and, uh, but... If you missed that, I'm pretty sure it's on the loop somewhere, so you can look at it. Um, anyway, uh, we raised, y'all ready for this? $2,711 and some change. Unbelievable. So just, uh, man, it was really, really cool. Um, apparently, I didn't stand much of a chance. Some of you held back your uh, bottles uh, the money that you were putting in the bottles in order to put in the boys and the girls. And for, for those of you, like my wife, I'm very disappointed in you uh, for that. But uh, anyway, man, we, it was a great, great week. And then I don't know who y'all's pastor is, but scheduling another giant event 72 hours later, that's crazy. Um, but that's what we're doing uh, tonight, man. We have our food trucks and fireworks, and man, it's going to be a great time. Bring people with you. Uh, if you can help, that'd be great. Uh, 4.30, we've got some people getting there to kind of help set up, and obviously, if you can stay late to help tear down, that would be really helpful as well. But man, it is. Uh, it looks like the rain's going to hold off, which is a blessing. Uh, and then, all you farmers out there, it can rain a flood tomorrow, all right? We just... Let's get this event in, and then we'll, we'll go from there. Uh, but, man, it's going to be a lot of fun. I hope that you've prepared to be there. Uh, it's going uh, to be great. We are expecting a huge, huge crowd for that, and it is always a party. Hard to believe that this is the fourth year that we've done it. Like, we did it right before we launched, and we've done it every year since. So four years in a row. So anyway, uh, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 11. Lots going on. Man, lots going on. We are coming back to the book of Mark for our final month in the book of Mark. Uh, we have talked about how Jesus in the book of Mark has focused heavily in the first few chapters on his Galilean ministry. So this would have been primarily Jewish crowds, right? The masses of people that came from all around to hear Jesus, uh, these casual fans, right? These, these folks that, would, that were there for the fish and chips. And so most of these would have been Jews, but Jesus ministered to them. Jesus called a smaller group. He called a group of 12 to be his disciples. So the middle chapters of the book of Mark deal with his specific intentional training of these, this small group of men, specifically Mark, uh, uh, 
excuse me, Peter, James, and John, his innermost circle, but the very small group of men that would take over leadership of the church as after he would leave. But what we see in Mark 11 is a really ex- exciting transition. Really, it's the climax of Jesus's ministry on earth. Do you remember Genesis 22, 18? God is making a promise to a man named Abraham. And he tells Abraham, he prophesies to Abraham that Abraham through you and your seed will all the nations of the world be blessed. That's what he tells Abraham. Up until this point, up until the time of Christ, you could argue that Israel was anything but a blessing to the nations. When they were where they needed to be with God, right, it it spelled disaster for people around them. When they weren't where they were needed to be with God, it spelled disaster for the people around them, right? Israel was anything but a blessing. But Jesus, some 2,000 years after he made the promise to Abraham was finally going to make good on his promise. No, Jesus, the the last part of Mark isn't about Jesus' ministry to the Jewish masses. It's not about his ministry to the disciples. It's about his ministry to the nations. When God makes good on the Abrahamic promise, the Abrahamic covenant that through you and your seed will all the nations of the world be blessed. We are about to find out, to discover how Jesus of the seed of Abraham would be a blessing to every tribe, tongue, and nation to such a degree that we are here because of it. We are here because of what happens in Mark chapter 11 through 16. And so we're going to read that today, Mark chapter 11. Uh, What we see in Mark chapter 11 is Jesus's uh, claim of authority. He he claims authority. In fact, for all of these books, all of these chapters, we're going to see authority, the authority of Christ be the focal point of all that he's teaching. He's going to make claims and then he's going to have to substantiate the claims. Right? Okay, it's one thing to claim authority. It's another thing to have power to execute that authority. I'll give you an example. You know, in Athens, right, at least three roads are being worked on at all times, right? Y'all know that? And they're always main arteries that make you, that test your religion, right? That test not, not your relationship, like that's solid, but your religion might fluctuate a little bit in traffic. Um, Let's say you come pull up to a light, right, that's not working because they're doing construction. And the traffic cop is there. Now, that traffic cop has authority to be there. He has been given authority by the city to be there to direct traffic. But in a giant Mack truck, if that Mack truck does not heed this Traffic cop's authority, that Mack truck has the power to usurp that authority. Does he not? At least in the short term, right? So that cop has authority, but not actually the power to ultimately to stop that Mack truck from barreling through the intersection. That Mack truck has the power to do that. What it does not have is authority, right? So what ends up happening is he gets arrested, right? And so so he doesn't have the authority to do it. And so there's a beautiful blend that has to happen. For Christ to claim what he is about to claim, he better be able to back it up. And what we see 
in these last few chapters of Mark is Jesus making his final claim to be who he truly is. And we see the power of God demonstrated in his life. The power of God backing up exactly who Jesus is. Why was Jesus raised? Jesus was raised to prove that he was who he said he was, right? And so we're going to see that. But the first thing we see is his authority claimed. What Mark 11 is, is a resume of sorts that Jesus gives us to who he is. The roles and the offices that he has the ability to fill. I brought with me today my resume. I have kept my resume. I actually asked my worship pastor to print out my resume, um, which is a weird request I, I, I thought about in hindsight. Um, but I'm not going anywhere. But I do keep it current just so it's not a big task. And so I, I've got my recent stuff. Well, what I haven't done is gone back and looked at all of the things that I had at the beginning of my resume. And let me tell you, y'all, some of these things are pretty hilarious, right? Some of the jobs that I held before ministry positions or some of the things that I considered jobs, uh, I was doing everything I could. The last time I submitted my resume was, was at Lindsay Lane Baptist Church. I was putting in for the youth pastor position. And I was so qualified for it that they didn't hire me for that position. In fact, put me in two positions. I was children's and junior high. They hired me and Andy John at the same time. I was children's and junior high. He was high school, college, and young singles, right? So they, I was so qualified, they made up a position and put me in, right? Not exactly. To say the least, I did not check every box that you would want to have checked as a youth pastor. Like experience. Hello, right? Experience leading student ministry. Well, I handed out cupcakes one time at a VBS. Like, you know, like, and I started looking through some of the, I mean, I go all the way back into like awards I got in high school. Like that's, that's how far, like I was trying to pad my resume so much. Like I won the, win, like the Wendy's Heisman scholarship. And so like, I, <laughs> there's something nobody cares about, but I look back on that. I'm like, what a dummy. And then I think about the church that hired me and I think, well, praise the Lord, right? It's, his grace is sufficient. Um, because a resume, what you would like to accomplish in your resume is when you put in for a job, you would like to demonstrate on your resume that you check every box to being the perfect candidate for that job. Hey, I am putting in to be the pastor of Lindsay Lane North, and here's all the reasons why you should hire me. I check every box, right? That's what a resume is for. What Jesus does in Mark chapter 11 is gives us his resume. I am the Messiah. I am the king. I am the priest. I am the prophet and I am the savior. This is who I am. And we see it by the claims that he makes because of his actions in Mark chapter 11. The first thing that he claims to be, Jesus claims to be king. Look at Mark chapter 11, verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, by the way, where we left off, by we left, where we left off in the book of Mark was Jesus was leading a parade of disciples. The, the disciples were a little nervous. Jesus was not as much, right? Leading the way to Jerusalem. There was already a quote-unquote uh, warrant out for Jesus's arrest in Jerusalem and everybody was going hey it's Passover Jesus hasn't missed the Passover do you think he's going to show his face 
And he does a lot more than that. Right? Proving that he's king. So they drew near to to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany. At the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples. And he said to them, go into the village in front of you. And immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. So an unbroken colt. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Like, hey, why are you stealing this colt? Say to them, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and they found a colt tied at the outside door outside in the street and they untied it. And guess what happened? Some of the people said, what in the world are you doing, right? And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they said to them what Jesus had said and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and they threw their cloak on it. And he sat on it, and many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, meaning God, save It is a a request, it is a earnest desire for God to step in and to intervene on our behalf. God save. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. And would you pray with me? Father, illuminate your word to us. May I preach and share, Lord, exactly what is in it. And Lord, I pray that you would silence me in things that are not. God, that you would teach us today who you are. You would reveal that through your word, through Mark's gospel. God, and I pray that we would be forever changed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, real talk. When we read the Bible, we read a lot of things that are weird, and because we know the stories, we act like they're not. Safe? It's a safe observation. Things like a king is arriving in Jerusalem. What should we do? What mode of transportation should we take? Have y'all ever watched donkey basketball? I mean, y'all country folk like me, y'all, y'all, I've watched it one time, listen, and I'm just going to tell you, that's the most redneck thing I've ever been a part of. And let me tell you, I've been a part of a lot of redneck things. This one took the cake. And, 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 you know, donkey basketball, some of you, we had some donkey basketball apologists that came up to me in the first service, uh, defending it. I'll just tell you, the, the one I watched was not very compelling. Yeah, it was cool, and it got people in the door because you're like, hey, we're watching donkey basketball. Y'all, the donkeys don't hardly move, right? And so like, it, it became like trying to shoot the ball from the backs of donkeys that aren't going to go anywhere. They refuse to move, no matter if you pull them or whatever. They're just stubborn, right? They're ugly. They make weird noises. They're stubborn. And then put on top of all that, this particular colt is unbroken, Meaning it has never had anyone sit on him. If I am running down my list of royal steeds to put a king on, 
The cult of a donkey is way down that list. But we read it and we go, oh yeah, he wrote on the cult of a donkey, oh, Hosanna. Like, and we just blow past it like that's not strange. But that's exactly what Jesus did. Secondly, I don't know about you, but I don't go many places where people, not only am I riding a donkey, but people are throwing their clothing down so that my livestock can walk over it. That also doesn't happen very much. I don't go many places where there's a parade that follows me, like we can just stop there. But right, these are weird things that are happening. There is something in our little Western mindset, in our context, that we are missing in a Hebrews context. Turn to Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah chapter 9, it's in the Old Testament. This is one of the last prophets that prophesied, one of the last words of the Lord that the people of Israel would have heard before they go into what's called the intertestamental period. 400 years of silence from heaven. Can you imagine how much the Israelites hung to The Hebrew people hung to the words of the last prophets that prophesied before the heavens were just shut up forever for 400 years, right? One of the last things that were said, Zechariah tells us in Zechariah chapter 9, every Hebrew would have known this text. Every Hebrew would have studied it. Every Hebrew would have known that it was just looking forward to the Messiah because of the context. And every Hebrew person would have known who this king was. Listen what it says in verse 9. Greatly rejoice, O daughter of Zion. Sing aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. If you're reading the King James, don't. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. This is messianic credentials. This is prophecy that the Messiah would feel. Why are we doing all this? We we can certainly say, man, it, it took a... Only the Messiah could ride the colt of a donkey and it willingly go down a path, right, from off the Mount of Olives down into Jerusalem into the temple with a parade and craziness going on around it, right? Only the Messiah could do that. But this is, this is what the Messiah will come. He will come riding on the colt of a donkey, right? And everybody saw him doing this. They saw that he was making a claim. Now, until this time, Jesus had been telling everybody, hey, don't talk about me. Don't tell anybody what I've told you. Don't tell anybody that I'm the Messiah. Don't tell anybody that I'm the Son of God. Don't do that. Even to his disciples, he would tell them while explaining to them who he was, he would tell them, don't tell anybody. Well, consider those days gone. From Mark 11 on, Jesus was claiming to be Messiah. He was making a claim about his authority. While much of Jesus' ministry, he kept his identity a secret. This was a clear, ready or not, here I come transition. He was coming in. He was Messiah. He was the king. 
He was claiming to be the Messiah, the rightful king of Israel as the son of David. So we have the promise made to Abraham. We track it a few hundred years. And now God is making a promise to David that there will never be, there will never uh, be a, there will be a king who will reign, that his reign there will be no end. Right Now, all the people assumed that was a physical reign, and, and, and so they acted accordingly. This is what the Messiah would be. This is what he'd look like. But he was establishing as the son of David his kingship of Israel, his kingship over the Jewish people. This was his coming out party, and everybody would have recognized it. Now, not everybody would accept it, but everybody would recognize it. On top of this, the imagery that we see, Ezekiel chapter 10 tells us that Ezekiel saw a vision of the presence of God, the Shekinah glory of God that rested rested on the mercy seat above the Ark of the Covenant between the cherubim. He saw it leaving Jerusalem. He saw it leaving the temple. It left, it went down the road, and it went over the Mount of Olives. God's presence left Jerusalem. You know what we see in the triumphant entry? A reversal of that. God's presence, not in Shekinah glory form, but in Son of God form, comes the exact same path... That's intentional, by the way. That's why it's in Scripture. Came over the Mount of Olives, descended into Jerusalem, and went back into the temple. God, Jesus was inaugurating his reign. But it was not the reign of his father, David, that he was most concerned with. This was the problem that people had with him. This is why they went from Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna to a week later saying, crucify, crucify, crucify. Because Jesus was inaugurating and claiming to be king and to have authority, but he didn't look like what they thought that he would look like. In fact, no king gets himself imprisoned, right? No king faces death. So there's no way this could be the Messiah. Crucify. Because he didn't come in the wrapper they intended. This was the inauguration of God's kingdom, not man's. And we see the ramifications of that in the text that follows. Because Jesus isn't just king. He's not just Lord. He's not just Lord and, and, and we should make him the Lord of our lives. But he is also priest. He is priest. He is the keeper of the temple. What happens? Mark chapter 11 verse 12. Again, weird stuff happens. On the following day when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And then Jesus does something that we, in our context, just do not understand. And he said to it, he cursed it, he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again and his disciples heard it. We know later, in a later text, that it died. And the disciples were like, oh, dang, he killed that tree, right? And we, that, I mean, that's literally, that's, that's what they say. Like, they're amazed. And then he teaches them about faith and prayer, right? Like, that's his teaching point. What, what's he doing there? We look at that and we go, okay, Jesus was hungry. 
He went to a fig tree where he thought he would get satisfaction. We thought where he would be satisfied. Instead, he found out that there was no figs. Even though it looked like it could have produced figs, it was not producing figs. By the way, not the tree's fault uh, because it wasn't in season, right? Can you imagine how the tree felt in all this, right? For those of you that are inclined that way, right? Like how, you know, how dare... So Jesus, in his hangry episode, curses a tree. What is going on? Well, then he takes it a step further. Because let's be honest, when we get hangry, we don't just take it out on inanimate objects. We take it out on other people, right? Let's keep reading. What happens? He shows up at the temple, still mad. They hadn't swung by a drive-thru. He's upset. He's hangry, right? Listen to what he's doing. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. Man, I'm hungry. Man, I want something to eat. All we've got is these sacrificial animals. You know what? Here, right? And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. We read this text and we think, what What is going on? Right? Again, we read things and go, well, yeah, of course, he cursed the the fig tree before he went to the temple. We all know this. Bible drill. Hello. Bible trivia. Right? What's he doing there? What's the significance of this? Because Mark puts it, he, matter of fact, it's so important to Mark, he brings it up again after this text. He brings up the fig tree again and shows them, the disciples recognize that it's dead. Here's what's happening. Why did he go to the fig tree? He was hungry, right? Jesus was all God, but he was all man. He was using the fig tree as an object lesson. He went to something that looked good on the outside, looked like it had it all together, and when he got there, he found that it was completely barren. When anybody would look at the religious system of Israel in that day, anybody would go, oh yeah, they're real religious people. They're very spiritual. They're so spiritual, in fact, that they they take animals to be be sacrificed. They eat meals a certain way on Passover. They observe all the feasts and all of uh, the famines. They they observe all of these things. They even have people that run around in funny clothes and pretty stones on their chest that administer all of these religious rites. Man, they look like they had it all together. But when the nations came they realized that it was all a scam. It was all a shell. They were barren and they were corrupt. And what Jesus is doing in this temple is what he did to this fig tree. He is putting an end to this religious, fake religious facade that is deceiving the nations. He is putting it to rest. He is ending this kingdom of man and he is inaugurating his kingdom in which he is priest and he is king and he is priest. Meaning it will be right worship that's established. Do you remember his conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well? Remember what she said? Hey, we're, you know, well, we, you say we should worship in Jerusalem, but we say you should worship on Mount Horeb. Uh, and Jesus says, no, 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 no. A time's coming when true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. 
And Jesus is bringing this truth to life. He is setting straight the worship of the temple. Now, I've heard people say things like, you know, we know in the Old Testament there was a lot of corruption going on, that people were buying and selling uh, and, and animals that had blemish, that had uh, defect, defects, and so they were presenting that to God, and God hated those sacrifices because they were not giving God their best, and so they would purchase them and they would be deceived. Listen, there's no reason to suggest that that probably wasn't still happening, but let me, let me, let me put it to you this way. Even if corruption was not happening, Jesus would have still done the same thing. Well, Alan, what do you mean by that? Just because it all checked out on the books, on their record, just because people were selling good animals, perfect animals, just because people were exchanging things and doing right by others did not mean the temple was functioning for the purpose in which it was intended. So because the temple was not functioning in the way their priorities had become skewed, Jesus had to set it straight. You don't have to be corrupt to be condemned. You don't have to be a crook. Listen, when he talks about being a den of thieves. Listen, robbing God doesn't mean that you're corrupt. Doesn't mean that you don't tithe. Doesn't mean that you don't come to church. It doesn't mean that you don't serve on a ministry team. It doesn't mean any of those things. Right? The new, in the New Testament light, who is the temple? We are. And as a temple, we are designed for one thing. Worship. As a temple of God, we are designed for the worship of God. When we make our temples, even if we are a good guy and gal, even if we are a straight shooter, even if we've got nothing to hide and no skeletons in our closet, if we are not functioning as the temple of God, designed solely for the worship of God, then we are wrong. We're in rebellion. Good things had become ruling things in Israel. And listen, Passover business was big business. Josephus, one of the historians of that time, tells us in 66 uh, AD, some four years before Jerusalem is destroyed, that two, 255,000 lambs were slaughtered in the temple for Passover. This was big business, but big business had replaced a big God. They missed it. Their robbery of God was not that they were necessarily corrupt. It was that they were robbing God of the glory that the temple was there to, to demonstrate. Temple, the temple is about the worship of God. And there were people there that to interact with the temple was not to interact with God. It was to advance themselves. It was to make money. Hey, I'm headed to the temple, babe. Oh, you going to church? No. I'm going to make some money. I'm going to provide for us. It became a career, not about worship. 
The people of Israel had missed it. They were the barren fig tree. Oh, they looked great on the outside. But they had robbed God of his glory. And and the same Old Testament God that we see is the same New Testament God. God will share his glory with no one. With no thing And when we as his temple make the defining decisions of our life about something more than his ultimate glory is the moment we put ourselves in line for the judgment of the true priest who is righting all the wrongs of worship. And this is what we see here, right? The Literally, the nations would come. There are, there are salvific ramifications for what the nations are seeing. They literally saw the worship of God as a business, as an exchange of money, as a way to grow a career because of the way that Israel was portraying it. They were profaning the name of God to the nations, even from where they were at. Look at Number three, so Jesus is king, Jesus is priest. He sets right the temple worship. By the way, there's another nuance to this. Jesus is getting rid of all the temporary animal sacrifice because he is the perfect lamb. He is creating a worship. Remember, this is inauguration of a, of a kingdom here. He is inaugurating a worship not based upon temporary sacrifices, but on the sacrifice of the perfect lamb of God. That he would bleed, he would suffer, and he would die to take away the sins of the whole world. But thirdly, we find that Jesus is the Savior. Right? He saves, and he doesn't just save God's people, Israel. He saves all who would come. Right? Remember, what did God promise Abraham? Through you and your seed will all the nations of the world be blessed. How does that happen? Look at Mark eleven seventeen. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? He's saying the design of the temple is to be a house of prayer. It's to not use the people, the foreigners that are coming in as a way to advance yourself and to earn money on the backs of these people that are coming to worship through the nations, but for us as Israel to put our needs under theirs to pray for the salvation of the nation. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. But you have robbed God of that. You have robbed him in making this about yourself. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. He was king. He is priest. He's also prophet. He is the embodiment of the, he is speaking the truth of God. What is the prophet's role? The prophet's role is to declare the word of God. He was speaking truth in a way they had never heard it before. 
prophet, priest, and king, and in so doing, was saving not just Israel, but saving all of the nations. You have to understand a little bit about the temple. So the temple, the way that it was set up is you had the Holy of Holies, and that's the part that we know about, right? The naos, the, the Holy of Holies where the covenant was, the Ark of the Covenant, and you couldn't go in there or you would die, right? We know about that. There was an outer shell called the court of the men, right? Or the inner court. It was where only Jewish men could go and worship. The second layer outside of that was the court of the Jewish women. The Jewish women could go and worship. The men were allowed in the court of the Jewish women, but the women were not allowed in the innermost sanctum of the, of the temple. Well, then outside even that was the court of the Gentiles or the outer court as it's portrayed in Scripture. The court of the Gentiles. And if you were a Gentile, if you were of the nations, if you were not Hebrew born, don't think that you're getting any further than the court of the Gentiles to worship God. Well, this is where they had set up their marketplace. This is where they had set up all of these things that looked good and sounded good and made sense to a lot of people, but was not about the worship of God. And so the nations would come, and this is who God is. God is corruption at the money tables. God is spying and selling of things and goods and services. And Jesus came in, the presence of God. The presence of God fled the temple because of the people's sin. This is the presence of God coming back within the temple to cleanse the temple. And he cleanses it for the nations. He cleanses it to, by prophecy, right, to prepare a way for the nations to be restored back to worship of Yahweh God. The nations would understand worship. It was symbolic of what he was about to do, bringing all tribes, tongues, and nations into the family of God. It was a symbol. And so he drove them out, drove out the Jews, and made way for the nations to come in. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 10, tells us, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. We're not, they immediately went physical. Every time he talked about, the, every time the messianic stuff happened, they, they would immediately associate it with the physical. But what Jesus was restoring was something far greater than physical peace, right? It was spiritual peace. He shall speak peace to the nations and his rule shall be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. The ends of the earth mattered to God. They mattered to Christ. And as prophet, priest, and king, he is not just savior of those that are born of Hebrew faith, of Hebrew, denom- uh, Hebrew descent. But he is prophet, priest, and king, and savior of all nations. And you know what? If you're here today and you have a relationship with Christ, guess where you're called? You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. 
ends of the earth matter. I got news for you guys. We're the ends of the earth. I don't know if you realize that, but we are the ends of the earth. Had Jesus not done what he did, had he not claimed authority and then through the power of God was raised from the dead, proving that he was, that it was truth, that he was who he said he was. Had he not done this, had Mark, Mark 11 not happened, we would be lost in sin. But Christ has made a way through his son. He's a sacrifice for sin. He's the king. He is to be Lord of our life. He is either Lord of all or he is not Lord at all in our life. He is the priest that restores right worship. So when we get selfish, when we allow our own self and our own sin to cloud, he is the one that restores that. He speaks truth as prophet into our life. And he ultimately is our savior. It is only through him that we have salvation through, from our sins. Only through the gift of God, which is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? If you're here today and you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you don't know about this relationship, what Jesus did in the temple some two, some. 2,000 years ago, over 2,000 years ago, he can do in your heart and your life right now. If you will surrender to him, here's the thing. He claimed authority. We can either believe him and receive him or we can reject him. That decision is yours. That decision was there in the first century and it has not changed. Today, you can choose to follow Christ with your life or you can reject him again. But I would call you, I would beg you, as Paul would say, I would beseech you to be reconciled to God, to come to him on his terms and let him transform your life. Let him change you from the inside out. Let him turn the tables of your heart. Let him restore you back to the place of right worship with him. That's not change you can bring about in your own self. It's change that can only happen through the work of the Holy Spirit. So if you're here and you need that relationship, I pray that you would respond. In just a moment when I say amen, I pray that you would find the center aisle, that you would come find me. I would love to share with you about how you can have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Would you please do that? But the ends of the earth matter to God. And maybe you're here and maybe you know that you've got a relationship with Christ, but you haven't been living on mission. You've made your life about something other than the glory of God. Maybe you need to confess. Maybe you need to come to this altar, find a place here and just lay down whatever it is that's holding you back. Maybe you need to intercede for somebody that you know that is the ends of the earth for you, someone that God has called you to, that you need to minister to, that you need to share with, maybe you need to spend some time in prayer for them, interceding for them. Maybe you need to join what God's doing here as a local body. Maybe you need to get your baptism in order. Listen, I just want you to respond as the Holy Spirit leads in this time of invitation. Father,
and be glorified in our response to your goodness, your grace, your word today. Sanctify us in truth. Your word is truth. Or may we respond to the news that you are king, that you are priest, that you are prophet, that you are savior in our life. And Lord, we love you. And may the redeemed of the Lord say so. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you stand to your feet as we sing? Would you come? If that's you, you need to respond. This moment's for you.